welcome to the very first episode of the Two Evil Eyes podcast, a podcast on horror, science fiction, and fantasy films. In future episodes, in this podcast, we will discuss what's new in theaters, Blu-ray, independent films, and quote-unquote classic films in those genres. This first episode will serve as an initial test. It's only about 35 minutes long and discusses Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. Future episodes will be longer and more diverse. For now, enjoy. Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. Cameron, tell me, when did you first watch that? In the mid-80s, there was a thing called Viewer's Choice, and it was sort of the first on-demand pay-per-view channel that existed. So what would happen is Choice would play, let's say, two or three different movies a week, and they would have set times that they would play. And as long as you called like a half hour, you would call your cable subscriber like 30 minutes before the movie began or up until like two minutes before the movie began, and your cable subscriber so you could watch the movie and obviously you know with vcrs and stuff like that i would always be recording the new films that would be coming out but jason lives uh, they had a dollar 95 special because it was friday the 13th so i know a lot of people that ordered it <laughs> that night because it was cheaper than renting it at the video store you know so it wasn't the first friday the 13th film i saw but i will say it was the first one that i think that i thoroughly enjoyed from start to finish uh, even though I, I enjoy I like them all, I think that part six, because of the little splashes of humor, because there were little kids at the camp, because all the camp counselors were very likable and I thought the set pieces were really cool and I thought that Tommy Jarvis was an excellent hero to go against Chase. And to me, I thought that it was and this is not the first I'm not the first person to say this, but I remember thinking this at the time. This is the first Friday the 13th that felt like a movie movie as opposed to, you know, a, a horror film. So for me, it was all VHS because back then I was either too young to go see it in a movie theater. But most of those movies wouldn't even show in the theaters in uh, in the area that, that I grew up in anyway. Of all the sequels, it is my favorite, but the favorite still remains, of course, the original. But at the same time, what what I found interesting, one of the things that you mentioned as one of the things, things that you liked was that the kids are finally there. And that part is actually what I liked the least. I do like some of the humor, but I think it's a little too slapstick at points. But overall, it, it still works. And it's just a shame that some of the stuff, according from what I saw in uh, uh, Crystal Lake Memories, the documentary, that they still cut some of the stuff out, like the triple decapitation. Now, do you know if that footage survives anywhere? I believe it exists in the documentary. You know, we often bitch and moan that censorship is, is so terrible. But at the same time, I think it has loosened up a lot compared to back then. Because from the way they described the shot, do you think that still would be cut today? No, and actually, if you see the shot, it the shot itself doesn't work. I mean, I, it, I think there's two reasons why things are cut. Sometimes they're cut because... Um, the MPAA says that's too much. That's too much. You know, cut it back, cut it back. And sometimes I think it's just, uh, you know, an easy way for the studio to say, "Oh, we had to cut some stuff back because it was too violent." When in 
actuality, the shot didn't quite work. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they actually employed that technique as, you know, an excuse. Just blame the MPAA for uh, for censoring this shit. I guess the more publicity, and I mean, one of the things that there are quite a few filmmakers out there, and you all know who you are, that will actually direct a scene extremely violent knowing that they will get an NC-17, and then they cut it back to what they really wanted in the first place. They overdo it just so that they can get it, to, so that it seems more extreme, you know, when MPA sees it, when uh, whereas if they just presented their version, they don't want that cut back. But if they overdo it, then the cut it back makes it, you know, makes it less extreme. So, yeah, no, exactly. But I remember reading about, you know, that attitude or or that approach rather um, years back in Vangoria in in that same era, actually, where a lot of people that you know directors that I respect now. Um, that it was just a matter of, you know, communicating with the MPAA, describing what you're doing and seeing if they would cut that or not. Um, and then just go over the Friday with 13th, that. Yeah. I mean, the Friday the 13th films were notorious for being cut. So it, it was very surprising when the next installment, seven, you know, the new blood, the John Carl uh, Buechler uh, episode, you know, I mean, is it any wonder that, you know, his episode, or a sequel, I should say, you know, got hacked to shit. I mean, <laughs> what did he expect? You know, I mean, he had so many great effects in that thing, but, you know, someone should have pulled him aside and said, none of these are going to make it into the film. I don't know why we're taking valuable, you know, uh, production time and doing them. Because, you, know, you know, with the exception of a uh, bonus feature on the uh, From Crystal Lake to Manhattan DVD set, um, you know, and a little bit in the uh, Crystal Lake Memories documentary, those scenes have never been seen before, you know, at least with proper audio and things like that, because they're never finished. Whereas I think like Tom McLaughlin, who directed Friday 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, you know, a lot of the other directors in this series kind of, you know, maybe in retrospect, you know, they'll say something different. But at the time, you know, it was it was kind of a job for hire and OK, I'll do it. And so those films, while they're entertaining, you can tell that someone showed up, they did their job, and they went home. Whereas I think Tom McLaughlin, he almost treats this film as like, this may be my one shot at making a huge you know, studio film, even though uh, it was independently made and Paramount just distributed it. But still, Paramount Pictures is going to distribute my film. And I think that he directs the shit out of this movie. I mean, it just, it just there's so much style and energy and and not like style like sam raimi's style where you know it's really fun and inventive it's friday 13 part six is the jason movie you can show people who aren't friday the 13th fans and the other sequel i would go with is final chapter i think final chapter is is pretty good too uh, six has just always been my all-around most entertaining one to watch so. i would have to fact check because i don't walk around with all this information in my head but of the other directors of sequels how many were actually also the writer? None. See, but with six, it was, and I, I, I think that just shows the the love that this guy had and and for it and put into it, and almost had his own wife killed on uh, by accident uh, on on the set. And if you, you know, despite all the bad shit that happened, it, it sounds to me also that that was one of the more smooth productions compared to the other ones talking mostly about the sequels and and i think that shows also and it was mostly shot on location yes and as 
um, McLaughlin's wife, I think it's her that says that because it was shot on uh, location and not in a studio where you go home at the end of the day, the whole team really became a team at that point, and they get to know each other a whole lot better, as opposed to just being a nine-to-five job. I mean, they pretty much literally camped out uh, for for that production. But the but the other two, the next two did that as well, seven and eight, and those were horrible productions. So I think that says a lot about the way he, you know, commanded the the ship of of that film, and you know, and he did something that the other directors didn't do, which is before he even sat down to write the script or take the job, he watched them all. He watched them all. Yeah, he watched them all back to back, and that was very smart um, because he paid attention to, okay, well, he it, it's a franchise, so, of course, he can't make it his unique film. I mean, he can't turn it into a Halloween 3, for example. If you're not familiar with Halloween 3, of course, or I know you are, but people listening to this, um, that's a sequel that is completely separate from the whole uh, franchise. Or since they had already done a part five where, yes, it's a Friday the 13th, but it doesn't actually have Jason in it. It's a Spoiler copycat. Alert. But he knew he couldn't do that. And also, he... he uh, so, because you were saying, you know, he didn't do a complete well-directed as Sam Raimi would do, uh, but within the confines of what he was allowed to do, I, I think he did do a tremendous job. And just the best that you could possibly do for uh, such a sequel, which is why it is the best sequel. Well, I think I think adding the uh, James Bond opening is fantastic, you know. <laughs> and 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 what I'm what I'm saying is in terms of like you know Sam Raimi, you know, when you watch Evil Dead Two, I love that kind of stuff. But at the same time, though, it is it's it's literally splat stick comedy horror. Whereas while there's humor in Friday Thirteenth Part Six, I think that Jason is never the one being the butt of the joke. So Jason is still taken very seriously in this film and everything else around him is has jokes and humor because they're not aware of the freight train that's basically heading towards them. Right, exactly. No, you hit a good point and that's why that humor does work. A little less of that would have been fine with me also, but I definitely don't like hate it. The best thing, of course, this topic has been beaten to death. But the, one of the better things that I like about it is the gothic opening and the gothic approach that he took to Jason. Where, of course, Jason is already a supernatural character, but he amplifies that in a way that you know we can accept uh, because we're all familiar with the Frankenstein story. And so when Jarvis grips a fence post. A metal rod, basically, and and stabs him to death, and then lightning hits that, and that's how Jason is brought back. So the very person that sets out to destroy him actually reanimates him. You know, the irony there is 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 just brilliant, and the gothic element of it is brilliant because we much more accept that Jason cannot die. You know, at this point, definitely not anymore. And Tommy Jarvis in this episode is. You know, again, like I, like I said, uh, McClellan watched all the films, so he felt the need in, uh, to keep the Tommy Jarvis story going. And I think that where he takes it is very cool. I, I'm I am shocked, though, shocked that this is the last entry with the character of Tommy Jarvis. That the Paramount New Line just dropped it. I I agree with you. 
uh it's 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 a shame i almost wish that matthews would have been able to uh play that part in in the previous movie and at the same time i'm glad he didn't because then matthews would have been associated with the one jason where and if he had done the previous one he would not have been in return of the living dead yeah probably so yeah i'll i'll i'll, I'll take him and i'll take him in two good horror films then one and a half. <laughs> yeah, and and I I much rather have him in uh, Return of the Living Dead for sure. Uh, which but is, I think it's I think it was a mistake though, and for and you know this has to do with Paramount and this has to do with the writers and that they decided to you know take it into a new direction um, with Seven and not have Tommy Jarvis even he's never even mentioned again. Like it would have been very cool if. Tommy Jarvis's girlfriend in the uh, in the sixth film, Megan. If Megan ended up being the one with the telekinesis in seven, you know what I mean? Just like so- something that just connected it all and just made it. And because you feel with like four, five, and six, you feel like even though five has problems and stuff, and and but some people really like it. I understand that, but I think that when you get to four, five, and six, it almost feels like Friday the Thirteenth is becoming like a steamroller of a franchise that is moving towards something. And then when you get to seven and eight, while both of those films each have like really cool moments, um, they're standalone films again. And, and then Paramount dropped the series and new line picked it up, you know, years later, it, it, it kind of feels like missed opportunity to me that they, uh, to me, I feel like, you know, since they're going to be making a new Friday the 13th coming out, next year or something like that maybe if paramount actually does it now's the opportunity i mean now's the the time to like let's tie all this together as opposed to just having three really cool films with the character of tommy jarvis and then out the door he's the only one that stood up to jason three times and won right exactly exactly and it would be the perfect thing to do i think to to bring his character back. It'd be great to see Tom Matthews, you know, reprise for that role. What I wanted to ask you is what do you know about the new TV series? Because according to IMDb, there in 2014 these episodes have been made and yet they're not available anywhere. Did they ever screen somewhere? No. Are they actually made or is that just bogus information that never got removed? Because I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming that's what it is because there would be stories all over the internet on in the, on the horror websites about on the set visits and stuff like right, that and there's, right. and there's and there's none there's none exactly exactly and so that's really frustrating because i really like the idea of having a properly done friday the 13th tv series where you would maybe have just 8 episodes in a season and not 24 week ones but just 8 strong ones that would allow to explore those kinds of storylines a lot better at this point. And I think there is an audience for that. There definitely. Well, yeah, there definitely is because, you know, we have nostalgia coming out of our ears with, uh, we got a scream TV series coming on MTV. Stars is doing the evil dead series with Bruce Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, you know, uh, was a A and E has, uh, uh, Bates motel. Mm-hmm. They have, uh, walking dead. They have this new show, fear the walking dead. Uh, you know, eh, but they have to tread water lightly here because we don't know how successful these shows are going to be. True. You know, and uh, 
while an Evil Dead series sounds interesting and fantastic, it's going to be all about execution. Uh, Scream, they're not even using the Scream mask, so they're doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that it reminds me a lot of like the original Friday the 13th TV series, which was not about Jason at all. But once you got over that concept, you realize, hey, David Cronenberg, Adam McGoyan are directing episodes of this show. It's pretty good. But they should have had a different name for it. Yes. Well, I had to compete against Freddy's Nightmares. Yes. And it still was a better show than Freddy's Nightmares because yes, that, it was. that was, I don't know who, what asset they were on, but um, it was quite something. <laughs> well, even going back and watching the premiere episode of Freddy's Nightmares, which is directed by Toby Hooper, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like when I was a kid, I thought, oh, this is pretty cool because it's showing Freddy before he got killed. And then you rewatch it now. I mean, you can literally tell these episodes were made for like three dollars. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can almost see the the wet, you know, uh, paint on the on the sets. But I want to say something real quick about Tom McLaughlin, the director of uh, Jason Lives. You know, the guy has made forty films. Jason Lives is the one he's primarily known for. He, for the last I don't know twenty five years or so, he's been doing uh, films for TV. And I remember hearing an interview with him, and uh, someone asked them, "Why are you Why are you doing all these TV films?" And he said, "Well, the reason why is because he did one TV film while he was doing prep for a, a feature film that ended up not getting done." Something kind of clicked in his head, which was I can be dealing with the studios and make three films a decade or I can write and direct these movies for TV or direct them and do four or five a year. And he chose to be more creative that way than deal with the studios. Now, from that perspective, that makes a lot of sense. It totally does. And uh, I went and watched one of his TV films because, you know, I've only seen a few of his movies because... A lot, only a few are available on uh, VHS or DVD. I tracked one down um, from the mid two thousand. It's called Odd Girl Out, and it's you know about a girl played by Alexa Vega who's in Spy Kids and, and Repo, the genetic opera, and she kind of goes to this high school and basically gets gets bullied, and, and it's it's one of those kind of after school special type of movies. But I'm telling you, his direction of that movie is amazing. It's like the best version of an you know an after school special of that topic that mm-hmm. could have been made. And and so I was just like, wow, this guy's still like he's not just sitting back on his laurels like just doing TV movies now. I mean, like he's still directing with extreme passion for whatever the topic is, yep. and. Uh, I'm telling you, there's a lot of filmmakers that after, you know, working in the business for 30 years do not have that passion anymore when they get on the set. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you guys do track down any of his films, I mean, I still think that he is a very good and talented filmmaker. And in fact, one of the interesting things was that he was in development for a few years with Morgan Creek to actually write and direct the uh, Exorcist prequel. And they ended up not going forward. And then when he heard Paul Schrader was going to direct it, he was like, perfect, perfect choice. And then that movie got taken away. And then Rennie Harlan came in and did that version. Morgan Creek was talking to good people. I don't know what the hell happened with that movie, though, but uh, there it is. And aside from uh, having directed four episodes for that Friday the 13th TV series that we talked about, he also directed the second episode for the Freddy Nightmares TV series. And that was, I guess, 
you know, relatively shortly after Jason lives within a couple of years or so. Well, I, I don't blame the studios. I mean, you know, you look at Jason lives had the budget that some of the other Friday the 13th films had as well. And look at how amazing that film looks compared to some of the other ones. You t- mentioned the opening scene at the graveyard Well, right before they get to the graveyard, they're traveling the road. And I mean, look at the mist. Look at the mood of, of uh, the, the mist around the lake. And then you see the the dog eating the roadkill and the car comes around the corner. And there's so much mood to his Jason film that I don't think is really there in a lot of the film. And, and yet none of them have really been able to really come close to the mood of the original one. But this is definitely the one, part six, that really draws you in and allows you to immerse in it from the get-go. I was just going to say, with the original, it, that's a... You know, that's a movie that I think a lot of horror fans have a complicated relationship with. Because when you see the film, especially when you're younger, you go, okay, it's, it's cool. And then after you see the Jason ones, you you kind of forget about the first one because you just want to see the Jason films. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was the one with his mom and this and that. And so you go and you just watch the Jason movies. And then years later, let's say as a late teen, adult, whatever, you'll go back and watch the first one again. And you go, wow, this is really substantial. You know, this is a really good film. It's well made. It's well done. But I think what's interesting is that when you think about the series, the first one, while it was supposed to be a standalone horror film, almost now now works as like the prequel to the Jason series. Well, in a way it is. You know, in but, a way But it wasn't it, meant to be. No. I I I know. Um because technically you could argue, well, not even technically, you could definitely argue um that the Jason character that does show up in the movie is only in her head. That is that part is just a nightmare. They leave that open, but it was never it never felt at the time like an open ending that would demand a sequel, right? It was the open ending that would demand a feeling of discomfort after you leave the movie theater. And there's a difference between that because some movies you, you, you just see, oh my God, they're already making the sequel, right? Or, or they probably already shot it. Whereas this one, the, the open ending was really just to creep you out. It's the carry ending. You know, there right. never was, you know, even though, yes, they did do Rage 2 Carrie, but at the time, the Carrie ending was to show, you know, the emotional scarring of Sue Snell, uh, not, you know, to suggest that Carrie was going to come back and rage on, you know. So, and I think that's the thing with Friday the 13th. It's the show that Alice is going to be forever haunted by what happened to her at Camp Crystal Lake. And, and, and that's one of the strong parts in the original is that it, it really is creepy. Right. It isn't just gore. It isn't just about the body count. It is suspenseful and it is creepy. And a lot of the sequels don't have that with with Jason. A lot of the sequels, you know, do seem to just be about the gore and the body count. Um, and so I honestly can't blame some people that it for for saying that some of those take on pornographic type uh, qualities. But the sixth one doesn't have that uh, flaw. It, it really becomes, you know, there's a story there and you've got characters that are a lot more three-dimensional than in, say, the fifth one or the seventh one. Is the only one without nudity? Is, uh, is, is six the only one without nudity? Of the Paramount films. Okay. 
I hadn't even stopped to think about that. That's interesting. And that's not because Tom McLaughlin is a prude. It's because the actress who was uh, in the in the in the sex scene in the in Obago um, didn't want to get naked. But okay. I think it. I think in a way though um, that 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 you know discrepancy with the rest of the series uh, makes it even more unique. Well, exactly, because it goes to show that because it was also critically one of the more successful ones. It was the first one after the original that actually had favorable write-ups on it by critics. So, yeah, it goes to show that that's not necessarily a major element that's important to make that kind of film successful. And how many of us, after watching Friday the 13th Part 6 a few times, didn't want to play that Jason card game with their friends? I was just thinking that that is that's too funny. I was thinking, you know, there there should be a board game of that and then I failed to look up to see if somebody actually did that because Friday the 13th could be turned into a pretty interesting board game. Um, I know it was a video game, uh like an Atari type of game, but uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, you know, PlayStation 4 hasn't snatched up the rights to do it. So it, it is interesting though that when Chris Nolan wanted to do Interstellar he was going to do it at Paramount. He did his previous films, Inception and Dark Knight and all that, at Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers was like, hey, we like Chris Nolan making us money. Can we production with you, Paramount? And Paramount said, okay, you can, but on two conditions. We want Friday the 13th back and we want South Park back. Uh, and they were going to have until 2015 or 16 to make films based in those two properties, which they haven't done yet. But it's interesting that Paramount really wanted those properties back, uh, yet they haven't done anything with them, which is, again, interesting because if you look at the speed, I mean, from Friday the 13th 1 to, you know, Jason Takes Manhattan, we're talking eight films in eight years. Uh, You would think that Paramount getting a hold of the Friday the 13th franchise so that uh, Warner Bros. could be a part of Interstellar that you would think they would be on part four by now that they would just crank these things out but it just goes to show that in today's age for whatever reason movies can't just be in the studio system can't just be you know hey let's uh, let's just spend you know a million dollars on this movie crank it out let's go you know they they're, they're putting 20 30 million dollars into these Friday the 13th films that's absurd. $30 million didn't even make the production cost of all of them put together. I know. But then but then again, for some of them, the production um, circumstances were absolutely horrible for actors. I mean, was it the fourth one with the, with the rubber boat, the inflatable boat? Yeah. Where... You know, things just really get out of hand for, for the actor and for the pretty much the whole crew. And there's tons of horror stories like that where they really mistreated actors uh, because they're not name actors and they're literally exploited. But I'll go the other way and say, not necessarily exploited, but I think that when you're a low-budget film and you got hungry and up-and-coming actors, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people want to do more than the average Hollywood production, you know, where like people just sit in their trailers all day. People are game to do stuff. So yeah, some people push themselves a little more than they should, but that's all part of the independent, we got 28 days to shoot this movie spirit. So, but I just don't understand like why 
you know, <laughs> going to take $70 million or whatever like that to make a, a slasher film in the studio system today when we know for a fact that, you know, slasher films barely even make that much on their return. I mean, they, they need to be following... Um, who is that company that's coming out with all those horror films now? Is it Ghost House or no? It's I can't remember who it is, but uh, there's a company coming out and they're they're just cranking out these horror films and they're making them for less than a million dollars and they're making like forty fifty million dollars each. So I think that's what Paramount and New Line and all them need to do is you know they need to go. Scale back their budgets a little bit more. Yes, maybe you can't do such fantastical stuff anymore. But, you know, do, give a sensible budget, all right? Instead of doing $40 million Friday the 13th films, why don't we do $3 million Friday the 13th films? Look at the uh, Michael Bay Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. which was, I believe, an expensive one. Yes, it was. Um, I don't know what the budget is from the top of my head, but I'm trying um, to find this um, out right now. Um, Nineteen million dollars. Nineteen million dollars. You know, of course, that made eighty-eight million dollars worldwide, but but you also got to factor in at least another twenty million dollars in advertising. It's one of my least favorite Friday the Thirteenth movies. The weird thing about the remake is I think it's one of the better made remakes of all this current horror cycle, yet it's the one film I've I've returned to the least. But I I I, I can say that it looks right, you know, the production value is there, but it doesn't have the the fun quotient that some of the lesser made films have. So I don't I don't watch it. Yeah, I, I just I just don't find it very uh, enjoyable, uh, and I couldn't tell you why because I like what's his name Pat, uh, from Supernatural. It's the other one, not Jared Padalecki. It's the other one. In Friday the Thirteenth, it's for Lucky. <laughs> because it's Jensen Ackles in the uh, oh, yeah, in, in My Bloody Valentine, it which is. is also a remake. Yeah, Jared Um And so uh, I, you know I, I I like him, so I was excited to to see that movie uh, with him in it because of Supernatural and. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and it had all the elements. It had all the elements. If you break it down, it has all the elements that the other films have. They go back to the lake. You know, um, it is kind of strange because I, I know some people complain that, you know, it's basically a remake of one through. Um, I guess I didn't like the rich boy asshole in it and that sure. element of it and that whole thing. And where you got this fancy lake house instead of this camp that is sort of run down and they have to together fix up the place to sort of make it work. And they all go there as friends or become friends or, you know, whatever. But there's not this attitude between the the two characters. And it almost feels like the rich, spoiled kid is the bad guy and not Jason. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. with him, you you really want Jason to just off him at some point. And I guess that just didn't work for me. But Jason does. Well, yeah, but I that 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 technique didn't really work for me that uh approach to making the remake having the extra villain in there if you will but i don't even know if that's really a remake 
it's kind of just like a retelling it because it's not remaking anything. And it didn't spawn but, any more sequels, did it? No, and that's what I'm getting at is because the asking price to do the sequel was seventy million dollars, and Warner Brothers wasn't going to cough up. $70 million for a Friday 13th sequel because the producers were all asking for astronomical amounts of money to even be involved. So this the property was just sitting there, and that's why Paramount asked for it back. You would think that Paramount asking for it back would have done something with the property. Yeah, or maybe they they just wait for the right time to do that where they don't have to spend that much. But they have a timetable, Dirk. That's what I'm getting at is that they only have the – after 2016, the rights go back to Warner Brothers. But what if they do make it, and then what happens? Do, it, still, does, it still goes back. So it goes back regardless. So that's what I'm saying. If they knew they only had you know five years with that property, I would have cranked out five films. So during this time, then you're saying Warner can't make any. Paramount has it. So maybe what, what did Paramount release that could possibly be uh, construed as competitive with a Friday the 13th film? Right now, nothing. No, in the past couple of years or coming up soon. N nothing I'm aware of. They haven't. They don't really do horror films. Yeah, that's a shame. I was just wondering, maybe they did it for competitive reasons, you know, um, which no, doesn't they... make a lot of sense either. But and they keep saying like we're gonna we're gonna make one of these Friday Thirteenth films before it reverts back to Warner Brothers, and I'm like, I don't understand. I would have been cranking out one or two a year <laughs> with the speed with the speed. They made the first, like I said, for eight films in eight years. Number six was, was done for just over half a million, I think, right? Right. Reboot was done for 19 million. Right. So let's say you adjust a little bit for inflation, then what would you get? Like five million? Okay. You know, instead of half a million? I, I, that's probably wrong. In, that's like being very generous, right? But for that same nineteen million, you could then you know make three and a half movies, right? Um, that wouldn't have that investment risk. And I guess for a for a, for a Michael Bay film, it's it's still nineteen million is probably still cheap. But for a Friday the Thirteenth film, it's just ridiculous. Um, and they could have just been cranking out a couple of movies for four or five million bucks each, and it would have been a blast. The Nightmare on Elm Street remake they did in 2010, the production budget alone, $35 million. <laughs> That's crazy. The domestic total gross was $63 million. Now, you take in the fact that you're going to add in at least $20, $25 million extra for advertising. So that movie made probably around $4 million, which is, I mean, it's not in the black. Or I mean, it's not it's not in the red. To me, um, that remake could have made Wes Craven's film thirty five times. Think about that. And and that's a remake nobody goes back to watch. 